Welcome to the HVACR Radio Podcast. Tonight we've got all of the boys. Men, all of the men. Ruben, Chad, Ulysses, and I'm Cameron. And we're going to be talking with uh, Don Gillis from Copeland Compressor tonight about compressors. And before we get started, I think we're going to go over what we did this week. I'll go ahead and go. Um, let's see, Monday had a glycol leak um, at a bottling plant. Uh, they have these UCVs and they put a uh, quick connect fittings on them. They ice over, so they take the ice off with what looks to be like a hammer. <laughs> so they damage the fitting, lost about more than a little bit more than 55 gallons of glycol. Tuesday, what do we do Tuesday? I'll let Chad talk about Tuesday. <clears throat> on Wednesday, which is today. The, what's today's date? Fourteenth, I think. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I had a. It's relevant. There's a um, production uh, facility. Uh, they had several issues. Um, two of the issues that I found that were weird were the headmasters were leaking by. So, usually with the headmaster, it's stamped with a pressure rating. If the discharge pressure falls below that plus or minus 10%, it will start to modulate open and let hot gas bypass the condenser and go into the receiver. What I noticed is when I leaned over to check the side glass, I touched the receiver and it was, it burnt my hand. It was the liquid line coming from the condenser going to the headmaster valve was 91 degrees and then my uh liquid temperature coming out of my headmaster was like 120 so there's a pretty big increase of uh temperature there my discharge was 168 so basically that valve was open when it shouldn't have been open because i checked another one and it was 94 in 94 out so we'll have to come back and pump it down cut it out and replace it but so on the headmaster, it has uh, three connections on it, one to the discharge of the compressor, one to the receiver, and one from the condenser? Yes. And then if you're, you're saying if your discharge pressure drops, like on a typically on a colder outdoor ambient, so you'd have a discharge pressure, a low discharge pressure, and then the valve would modulate open and send hot gas from the compressor discharge through the valve into the receiver to maintain your discharge pressure. Right. Yeah, basically so your TV can function because <clears throat> there's a required uh, pressure drop across that valve for it to work properly. So that's why they're in place. They also have the two-valve setups where it's um, ORI and a OROD, I think. And <clears throat> this one's just a one assembly valve that does both. I think on the larger systems, they'll split it up into two valves. One's the holdback valve and... One's a differential, so once it, there's a differential across that valve, it'll start to open. So I found actually two of them that were leaking by, which is pretty odd because they rarely go bad. So we'll have to get that changed out and just go from there. You well, just clip the tail on it? I was really thinking about it, but I was afraid that there's a leak internally, and I don't want to lose the charge. Because we've had 
uh, me and Chad replaced the headmaster there where the, I guess the bulb, or not the, the tail got rubbed out on the side and it leaked out all the refrigerant. So there's a potential for you to leak the refrigerant, but I was thinking about it. Today was pretty warm, wasn't it? So there's like no reason no, for that valve yeah. to even be... <clears throat> Like I said, Thinking my, about my head pressure was like 330. Yeah, that's crazy. It was like 80, 75 or 80 degrees yeah. out. Like it shouldn't, it shouldn't be modu- bypassing it, it at that point modu- or holding it back. Be, I'm thinking it should be 100% closed. Yeah. But what else? Check some K2s that we installed there. Um, Found a few. There's two compressors that need to be replaced there, but they already knew about that. How about you, Ruben? This week has been uh, training, really, for me. Uh, They've been sending me out with a couple of the BRF guys here at the company I'm at. So just going through uh, some troubleshooting procedures. But I'm doing, like, the small stuff, like uh, actually connecting the, you know, hooking up the computer to the LGMB module and hooking up to the unit. And it's pretty cool. You know, you get to see all the discharge and suction pressures and temperatures and then when we have like communication failures you can kind of sort of troubleshoot and sometimes you have to go reset uh indoor units reset outdoor units Um, what i've figured out here in the last week or so is that these vrf systems are the way it was explained to me is you got to treat them like a computer you don't treat them like a like a regular air conditioning system. So, I mean, you do at some point, but for the majority of the time, it's like everything's on a computer, everything's codes and boards and errors and resets, yep, communication, all that. So it's a completely different world for me, but it's, I mean, I like it. I like jumping into it. Just, I mean, I'm just learning, man. It's totally different than what I'm used to. Are those mostly startups that you're doing, or are you doing mm, service too? No, or? service and... I've, I think I've only done one startup, but all of these are like, they're not like super big service calls, like compressors or whatever. It's mainly like water leaks or noisy fan or no cool, which ends up being some sort of, um, some sort of error that for some reason, once you reset them, they start back up and everything runs. I mean, did you figure out what was wrong with that one yesterday you were telling me about? (laughs) No, not yet. Not yet. So to be determined at a later date. That'll be to be determined. Yeah. Is there a lot of calm errors with them? I mean, we ha- we haven't done very many uh, VRF systems at all, but I would I uh, don't think that there's like that many. Is there that many instances where you um, actually lose communication? I mean, or is that just like you reset it and it kind of goes well, back like to life? Some of the ones we found was um, somebody will shut off the inside unit for some reason. Well, so yeah. it'll throw a code, and then you go out there That'll and reset do it. it. <laughs> yeah. communication or quick. they'll have, like, some sort of power glitch, and you just reset. You have to shut down all the indoor units. Then you shut off the outdoor unit, and then you restart them up in the same fashion, indoor first, outdoor. And then you just uh, tell the board to, like, um, uh, it was, like, auto. Like auto find. Uh, yeah, kind of like address. an auto find. Auto address. auto address. There you go, auto address. And it'll find them and address them, of course. And it, I mean, it goes through other things that I still don't know, but it's pretty simple, but pretty difficult at the same time. So it's pretty cool. Chad, are you here with us? <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. 
Uh, Monday was pretty uneventful. <clears throat> Last week at one of our money accounts, I had found a um, tower fan motor, seven and a half horsepower that uh, was kind of noisy. So I told the customer and uh, was going to just replace it with new, but I had somebody else in my ear saying that we should replace the bearings Cheaper, in it. faster. <laughs> anyway, <It's> so, <clears throat> so Ulysses and I yesterday uh, pulled the motor and pulled it apart with many broken bolt heads. Uh, everything was pretty much just covered in scale, and it was it was not good. The pulley wouldn't come off the shaft, and we ended up getting it off with uh, Cameron's help, giving us a little little tip, which was nice. Um, once we pulled it apart, uh, found that the back bearing was seized to the back plate of the motor, so it actually came off the shaft, and then. Um, we inspected the shaft and it was scored under the bearing surface. So, uh, and told the customer and they opted just to replace the motor. So went and picked up a new motor, slapped it in, new pulley, got it all aligned. Broke another bolt getting it in. Broke another bolt getting it in. Uh, got ham hands, so, um, torque to spec. Torque, torque to spec. <laughs> Plus about, about, a little about bit more 280 though. foot pounds. So um, can you share that? tip that he gave you yeah use a How grinder take it off no it was actually um so it was a oh, bushing it. style pulley and we could not get the bolts in to press the pulley portion off of the bushing so uh cameron recommend just to hammer the the uh as long as we got all the bolts out we can hammer the pulley section off of the bushing and then use a puller to pull the bushing off so that ended up working out um fairly well yeah, you guys like got lucky on that one because sometimes the you can put the QD bushings on either way. So sometimes they'll put the QD portion on the back of the pulley, which sucks to for access to the bolts and all that stuff. But also you can't ever get anything really in between the motor housing and the pulley. You know, the pulley section to try to give it some love to get it off of there. So when you with the QD bushing on the front, it makes it easier because you can just smack it back and and get to the the bushing and pull that off of the puller. Uh, this week I went out to a customer site, actually a new facility or newer facility. We were supposed to do some work if they ever pull the permits for it, but, uh, the facility supply chain manager actually called me up and said that they had a duck that had fallen off of the roof. And if I could, or a duck that was just laying on the roof, I guess, and if I could come and give them a quote to replace it. And when I got there, got up on the roof and saw it was pretty obvious which duct it was because it was laying on the ground or on the roof and I got to looking at it it was just a 20 inch spiral duct and I took all the measurements and everything and then I started looking at the heater and that it was attached to and it didn't seem quite right they had just taken off of the supply or excuse me of the intake of the heater just use a start collar like you would use on duct board and they put a, a start collar on there and then started running the duct and then the duct went you know ran down the roof like 50 feet and then went inside the building and so it didn't really seem right but I didn't think too much of it and then I got back to the offices and I was office and I was talking to Chad about it and then it dawned on me and I looked up the model number on that heater and it was a 100% outside air indirect fired heater not made for recirculating air 
So that was kind of interesting. So I called the guy back and asked him to get me some more engineering info or any drawings that they had that may have shown that duct uh, being ran to the, the heater or not. But it looked like it was kind of done after the fact. And I called up the manufacturer of the unit and they said, absolutely not. So we'll see where it goes. I think it's because it was too close to the towers. That's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, I didn't think about that until you told me, but it does make sense that, that, you know, you have a 100% opposite air unit kind of, it was probably within another 50 feet of a a cooling tower or an ammonia evaporative condenser, and there's also a relief vent right there. So potentially, but either way, it's that piece of equipment's not made to have uh, recirculated air, so we'll see what happens. All right, guys, the tool of the week is not, it's more of a software tool, so you have to carry around a laptop, and it's from Emerson. You download, there's a couple different uh, software downloads. Uh, The one I use is the Copeland CoreSense. You can actually connect directly with your computer with, um, I use the RS-485 to 232 cable. I connect. Uh, directly to any course and, and you can see the runtime. you can see how many times it's filled on oil how many times it's been reset you can see the um, the temperature discharge temp if it has that what else you can record uh, data logging for that course and i believe you can connect that module to the e2 i believe right ruben i don't know okay but yeah, that's my tool of the week. Check it out, emerson.com. Tonight we have with us Don Gillis from Copeland Compressors. How you doing, Don? Good, good, good. Very good. What are you you've been working on anything exciting in the past week or two? You know, we're uh obviously in this COVID mode right now. So uh, you know, starting Monday, I you know, between podcast and virtual learning and uh webinars, I think I did a started Monday morning, I did a delivery uh, first thing in the morning to internal company employees, like uh, not just nationwide, globally, actually on a CO2 presentation on refrigeration and then so on and so forth. So tomorrow and Friday will be a virtual class. And I'm not sure where those contractors are at, but it's actual technicians like yourselves that are going to be located somewhere. And I'll be delivering that for, you know, with uh, breaks and lunch and all that kind of good stuff. And then next week we'll uh, we'll hit the road. Oh, cool. So you guys are actually going to get out there, huh? Yeah, I'm anxious to, you know, I don't know if I shared that with you or not, but we travel 35, 40 weeks a year. So it's been down since the middle of March. So it's, um, you know, it, I'm excited. So, yeah, it's going to be one after another after that. So I'm excited. Awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be fun get out on the road again and maybe kind of get a little bit back to normal. Yeah, you know, you know, you, you guys done this for a while. It's just... Uh, you know, there's only so much you can do on online and what have you, um, unless you ship somebody compressors and kind of have them follow along. So it'll be good to have the hands-on stuff going again, the camaraderie, and that's always a good time. Cool. You kind of mentioned about the training aspect of it a little bit. Could you give us a quick rundown of just your experience or your, your you know, brief history on your career and then how you got uh, hooked up with Copeland and what you do with Copeland? Yeah, sure. So I, uh, started, uh, gosh, I was a laid off steel worker, actually union steel worker. And they closed the doors, um, went to work for like a mom and pop shop, not too far from the Copeland plant, a Lennox dealer. And, uh, 
I'll save you everything in between. But uh, I guess if there was a high point to my career before I got doing what I'm doing now, I was a service manager for nine and a half years for uh, a very, very large company. We did everything, refrigeration, HVAC, um, you name it, we did it. Um, if the economy changed, we went with the whatever was available uh, work. So, um, and then I, I don't want to say I got burnt out, but I was trying to reinvent myself um, to get out of that service managers. If you've ever been a service manager, it's, it's pretty grueling. I have a lot of respect for service managers. It's a, it's a, you know, there's not really, I never had any days off in the summer, as you know, those kind of things. But anyways, I took a territorial position, uh, territorial sales manager, and I never really wanted to get into sales, but it was a neat way to go into contractors offices and talk to them. And that worked out real well. And then this job came open and I actually was born and raised about an hour from the Copeland plant and the person had to be from the area or they wanted them to be, uh, preferably. So, um, I just, you know, the planets all aligned. People were retiring right before I came in and, uh, by default, I actually became the, uh, the lead, the lead instructor three and a half years later because of retirees and those kind of things. So been there, uh, three and a half years and I teach everything. I'm involved in all the courses and they range from four hours to five days. So, um, anything you can imagine, I, I teach, I do, um, I do all the, I think all the, uh, major presentations at the, uh, annual things like RSES. Um, I do the HVAC educators. I do a presentation for them and, uh, you know, Johnstone supplies at, at their annual event and different things. I, I usually go and, and speak in for us. Uh, Emerson as the, um, you know, technical advisor, I guess, for the education services. That job was almost uh, tailor-made for you at that point, being right in, right in your backyard and all that it, uh, going on. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was perfect. It was, uh, not gonna lie to you. I'm not a kid. Uh, I mean, uh, I don't know if I, you know, and, and no offense to anyone, but I would, I'm 57. So I, uh, it was, it was brutal the first two years. And my wife will tell you this. I literally, you know, closed the shades and, you know, to try to retain and absorb all this information about Copeland and Copeland products. And it's, it's a challenge, you know, all the time, but things are constantly changing. So, but, uh, long story short is I really dove into it. If I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, um, well, within a couple months I was delivering, helping deliver classes and that's kind of unheard of. Typically they want, you know, they don't want you to do anything, just follow along for six months. So, uh, they were all, you know, they were all happy and, uh, and I, and I just, that's the way I work anyways. I want to get in there and get my feet wet. So it was a, it was a great experience. Yeah. Just bury yourself in it and get, get it all figured out. <laughs> A, a lot of reading, a lot of AE bulletins, <laughs> and, you know, it's like a lot of, uh, yeah. So I'm glad it's all behind me now, or most of it anyways. Awesome. Can you give uh, everybody listening a quick rundown on Copeland products and, you know, the different types of compressors that they manufacture and what their applications are? Sure, sure. So we've got, obviously, we've got the scroll, um, the semi-hermetics the discus uh, reciprocating hermetics. And um, I don't know if you know this or not, or if there are listeners out there know this, but we actually own, we own a lot of companies. Emerson owns a lot of company. I work for, happen to work, as you said, for the Copeland division, but we own White Rogers, Rigid Tools, Vilter, Screw Compressors. We own, you know, Emerson owns that. So we have quite a selection of, of compressors. Obviously our scroll compressors, 
low temperature, medium temperature, high temperature, which we refer to as an air conditioning. Semi-hermetics are typically low and medium, and then your disc is reciprocating, and that, that's a wide range of those also, similar to the scrolls. Uh, and then, of course, the Vilter and the screw compressors, and uh, we know what they do. We, we make condensing units now, and uh, we make a condensing unit called the X-Line for medium and low. It has liquid and vapor injection, which is one of my specialties I, I like to talk about. And uh, so, and, it's, and we just released six months ago a digital with uh, vapor injection. So we're excited about that. They look similar to a mini split, almost identical to them. And uh, so they got a small footprint, very, very quiet. And uh, they're pretty amazing. They can, uh, I, I'll save you all the great details, but we got a lot of products out there. Yeah, I've seen those X-Line brochures at the parts house, and they, they look pretty cool. Uh, haven't got, haven't been able to see one in person yet, um, but they look pretty interesting. Looks like a lot of stuff in a small package. Yeah, they're, they're, uh, it seems to be regional when I travel. Again, I cover all of North America, so I bop around a lot, and it seems to be they got a lot of traction for whatever reason up in the northeast area, probably because of the oh up in New York and New Jersey. I do a lot of training up there, um, and I think I think there's a I, my I'm just guessing that they get a lot of traction up there, probably because the Emerson folks in that area did a good job first of all, but also they have such a small footprint you can literally mount them you know on top you know side of a building or something there. Uh, so there's a lot of them out there. And then I've been to places where, you know, um, they're, they're not as popular, but they're getting popular more and more and more. There's just, they're just so versatile compared to the, the older condensers, which still have their place. Don't get me wrong. So we typically have seen, uh, recip compressors in the low temperature applications mostly, but, uh, now they're, you know, more and more commonplace. We're seeing scroll compressors for low temperature application as well. Is there a, a point where you need to have one or the other, or what's the, what's the, I guess, the deciding factor for if you choose a scroll compressor or a recip compressor for a low temperature application? Yeah, well, technology's caught up with the times, first of all, there, you know, and, uh, you know, really it boils down to preference for the most part. Uh, more and more and more, the, the scroll is, is really taking over. Um, a lot of the uh, older technicians that are used to the, the K bodies and the different things, they're, you know, they, that's still what they like to replace it with. But more and more as time goes on, the scrolls are, are really taking over. They're, they're becoming way more robust. Uh, you know, they, they've got a, what they do with the scrolls now on low temperature, like your minus 35, your minus 40, they'll make the tips of the scroll set itself a lot thicker. And uh, it's it's just a lot beefier, and uh, just all kinds of different things with the shelling and what have you. But you know, we have a plant in Rushville, and if it's an indicator of the times, it's a remanufacturer that we take our cores back and do our redo our semi-hermetics. They literally come in on a, a skid, looking terribly bad, and uh, and when they leave, they're you know painted shiny black and. They get the same uh, UL testing, a brand new one would. They, they're really, they're, they're brand new. They come with the same warranty. If they don't make the UL, you know, uh, testing, uh, they're kicked out. Um, so we put a lot of effort into making them. They also, what they do is put the technology, the newer core sense and everything on them. But the point I'm trying to make is when you go over there, um, 
don't want to exaggerate, but about two-thirds of the plant is really all they're using now. And more and more and more, you see less of that going on, unfortunately. I don't want to say that it's a dying breed, that it's not something that's going to go away, that's something that's going to go away forever. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the CO2, you, you know, we, we've got, we use them in our transcritical on a rack in the medium load. And the reason for that, they still are a lot beefier. Um, they'll take a lot higher pressure, like in CO2, you need, you know, with the see pressures of 1,700 to 2,000. So uh, the semi-hermetrics are still out there. We have, a, you know, there's a lot of good technology there, mostly on your racks. But yet again, you see a lot of scrolls moving into the rack area. So it's, it's really application, what refrigerants you're using, and some of it's got to do, a lot of it's got to do with preference. Hey, Don, how's it going? This is Ulysses. Um, I just wanted to see if you could talk about the different types of capacity control for the different uh, compressors that y'all make? Yeah, the c capacity control, like, you know, the different, well, we, we, we've got the two-stage, or what we used to call two-phase, um, then we call it the two-stage. We've got the variable, and uh, we've got the digital technology, and, of course, the fix. The digital is the, the, uh, the latest, greatest technology, if you will. I think everybody, we, we were late to get on the variable speed. We were concerned about oil uh, getting when slowing that compressor down and uh, that concerned us so to be brutally honest uh, Copeland was was kind of late to get in that uh, that market we were uh, we, we really liked our two-stage compressor and we were happy there but uh, the OAMs wanted us to bring out a variable so we did um, a little I don't know if you were aware of this or not but the Variables, the only scroll of ours that actually has an oil pump in it, all the other scrolls are actually done by physics, if you will. I mean, it's just the way they designed them, they engineered them, and they, they pump the oil themselves just by using the shaft and the way they designed it. Uh, the, the, it's pretty cool if you've ever seen the operation. It's really, really neat. But uh, the digital is nothing more than just uh, unloading and loading. And, you're, and you see that a lot with, like, our two-stage, too. It's just a matter of... For example, the digital is nothing more than a than a solenoid valve that's literally releasing gas when you want to 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 match the capacity. So it releases the gas. The scroll set um, uh, the, the the tips come apart, and it's just basically on and off. For refrigerant, it's like in twenty second increments. So you know if it's uh, you know if it's if it's fifty percent, it's ten seconds on, ten seconds unloaded. 10 seconds loaded, unloaded, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and, uh, and I'm sure you understand two-stage. Two and it's literally all it's really doing, our technology anyways, is it literally has a bleed port that has a solenoid valve on the side of the, uh, the, the scroll set. And when it calls for 65% capacity or 100% capacity, it literally, the scroll set literally slips. It's like a clutch almost, and it's got a little bleeder hole out of the scroll and it basically it just lets amount of you know 33 percent of the gas bleed off of it and that's how they manipulate the stages and uh from what i've seen from everybody's technology they're all pretty much neck and neck and they're very similar to what each other so uh but yeah a lot of modulation now and uh that's that's where everything's going obviously that the, the the vfds and and all that good stuff. Um, I'm, I'm deep diving into that right now myself, actually, with teaching with it. So uh, a lot of good stuff coming down the pipes. 
Do y'all sell like a retrofit kit? Say I want to replace a standard compressor with a digital compressor for like an air conditioner? Yeah, yeah, we do actually. We do. And uh, uh, boy, I'm going to, I may have to send, I don't have it here at my fingertips, but yes, we do. We have a scroll uh, that's for the, uh, that can be replaced, uh, whether it's a rooftop unit or whatever you want to do. Uh, you want to replace the, slave compressor uh, for like in a rack system, the lead one. It's nice when you can put them in a rack system because you can use that digital to match the load. And once it maxes out, it can kick on the second compressor at that fixed compressor rate and go up. The digital actually drop back down to its original, to the smallest percentage, and it'll keep creeping up until it matches the load again. And then the third compressor kicks on the digital then drops back down. It's a, it's a great concept because it really, it load matches is incredible. Instead of kicking that, you know, that fixed compressor on and using all that energy at one time. So it's a real, real cost savings. Um, and it's a nice way to load match when, you know, like if you're in a supermarket or, or a movie theater or whatever that looks like as it starts to progress with people or load on it, um, it's, it's a nice fit. Digital is great technology. It was it was uh, it originated from the Asian market. Uh, digital is what they use a lot in ships coming over, like in food that has to be very very precise. Uh, bananas, for example, a lot of people don't know how hard it is to get the bananas to the United States. It's a real task. The humidity has to be exact. The temperature's got to be within a half a degree, and uh, it's a it's a long process, and the refrigeration has to be exact all the way through it. So that's where they use digital a lot in that. Yeah, I was looking at the um, kit. I think it comes with like a thermostat also. Yep, yep. Uh, it comes with a thermostat. And, and yeah, yeah. And there's a really neat video out there. I often pull it up when I'm in class and show it if uh, people engage about it that you can actually Google or whatever and uh, just put Emerson in there and put, you know, digital uh, digital upgrade. And if you like, I can send it to you after the podcast. And there's another one that's really neat. On the uh, the semi-metric on that kit, you can just take remove the head off of it. Now it has to be certain models, obviously, but you can uh, you can just replace the head and the gasket, and that's a that's a pretty good cool process too. And like you said, I'm glad you brought it up because they're they're nice little kits, and a lot of people are doing it. Um, and uh, we've got some nice, well you know, well delivered. Plus, there's uh, statements from customers that have used it and those kind of things, and they're and they're guys like you and I that actually work in the field, and they they just tell you what they think of it, you know. And uh, it seems to be doing really, really well. Yeah, I think I've seen every single Copeland or Emerson video at least twice. <laughs> yeah, well, they, you know, I know I I know I'm, I'm biased because I work for them, but like I tell everybody, look, they're free, they don't cost anything, and Copeland does a really nice job with their videos i mean if you if you don't have the luxury of tearing a scroll apart all the time and seeing what's inside of it some of the animation they got is about as good as it gets i mean it really brings you into understanding um i i, I love showing our videos in class because people can walk away with a much better perspective of what's going on inside that compressor than i could possibly draw the picture for them it's, it's pretty good stuff yeah, Ulysses is famous for cutting open his compressors. He's got some. Oh, he's, got, he's got some pretty good autopsy videos out there on some scrolls that have. 
gone out on him and, oh, really? and reasons for failures and things like that. So he's, a, oh, that's he's awesome. all about that. I love that part of the class. And that's what I'm doing next week. Uh, it's a three-day cost class, compressor operations service seminar. And uh, the third day, um, folks like yourself, technicians, we, we hope and we see this almost 100% of the time. By the third day, if you didn't know what to look for after you tear a semi-hermetic down, you will be able to tell us what actually happened to the compressor. And it's it's amazing. Some guys will look at you like have you, they've never even torn a compressor apart. And after the first two and a half days, when they get out there, they they we put them in groups. They come, we get to their their team, team one, team two, whatever, and we say, okay, what what happened here? And they've got the parts laying out just like a just like an eye top autopsy like you said and they lay the parts out and and they you know show the broken reeds and and whatever you know the the, the burnt up uh, uh the, the carbon and what have you and they tell us their story they put it together and they tell us and we like them to start out with the okay year what year was it manufactured and and was it the original compressor or what's the bill of materials and that's always an interesting part of the story too because sometimes you see compressors that are only six months old and oh by the way it's not even the first one so somebody's Somebody's just putting compressors in and not fixing the problem, and and that's unfortunately that we see a lot of that. Yeah, I think that's a big problem in the industry. That's uh, why we're kind of obviously on our kick to get information out there. But I mean, we've heard all of the statistics about how many compressors go back to the factory, and there was a event that could have been prevented or not even a failure at all. I mean, we I've personally been part of a few times where somebody condemned a compressor and we were called in to give a second opinion and it turns out it wasn't even the compressor at all. So if, you know, somebody else hadn't have been called in to look at it again, it would have gotten taken out and replaced by another one and sent back. And, you know, they would have found that there was most likely nothing wrong with it. So we've got a couple, uh, small compressors. That I think we're going to tear down and, and look at because to be honest with you I've never had the crankcase off of one or anything like you know done anything uh, mm-hmm. really in depth with a, a semi-hermetic compressor just because typically if it's not a valve plate or uh, really if it's not a valve plate or something pretty readily accessible you know essentially we replace it so uh, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna dive into it and kind of do what you were saying and get all the parts and pieces laid out and take a look at what what's actually going on inside I mean Obviously, it's similar to a, a Vilter or any kind of a reciprocating compressor, but we just want to get a a bigger or a better idea of what's happening. Yeah, no, you, you, and that's what we encourage uh, students to do that, uh, contractors and technicians. We, uh, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's mind-boggling, but I, it's always a, and it's always enjoyable for me when you share information and training, and when a person doesn't even know that you can even take, and and I'm and I'm and, and I'm not joking about it. You know, I just, I, I, we're all, I get better every day. I learn something, you know, every time I go to class from somebody. But you know, so when they see that you can do this, and oh by the way, if it's still under warranty, um, as long as you put the parts back into it, and, and we get everything back. Um, you can take it apart. Um, if it's not under warranty, you can take the whole thing apart. Now, it's like you said, is it logical to do that if you just need to take the head off of it and keep it running? No. But, but if it's, if you're getting a new compressor anyways, it might save you $7,000 the next time, if you, especially if you're having repeat problems. And on that note, too, for your listeners, we have a one-year warranty. 
Uh, it runs uh, parallel with the OEM's warranty, which might be five, 10 years, whatever that looks like. But our one-year warranty comes with a compressor teardown back at the factory. So you can take the compressor back to the wholesaler, any type of compressor, and you can request a, uh, a compressor analysis, which is basically what we do in our three-day teardown class. That's what the contractors are doing on the third day. They're doing a compressor analysis. They're writing down every little thing they see that's wrong or right, and you know, trying to put it together, almost like a you know, like a like a murder case, if you will. You know, they're getting all their pieces together and putting their case together. But, anyways, you can get that done. Now, if it's outside the warranty, here's another thing that that uh, is interesting. You can still have that done. There now, there is a small fee, and I don't get involved in monies. But you can ch- take that up with the with the wholesaler. But I mean, even if it's hundred bucks, and I don't know if it is, um, it's probably save you a lot more money than a than a very you know, and a, a pretty expensive compressor, you know. And and not to mention, like you said, being on both sides of the the coin, saving a relationship with a with a customer, you know, that's the biggest thing, you know. And you're not out there all the time because. Again, I know I'm biased, but there's a there's a lot of truth in this, and I know you guys are all savvy and, and, and experienced. But there, nine times out of ten, compressor failures is a system problem and not a compressor problem, and I see it over and over and over again all the time. And it's and I'm not judging. I was I'm one of you. Uh, I just see it more often now because it's my job. You know, I'm opening up compressors every week and sometimes daily. So. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's just, sometimes it gets repeating itself. And, uh, what you just suggested is the right thing to do to get to the bottom of it, because that's the only way you really learn. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I've said it before on the podcast and just continue to say it as technicians, we learn, uh, most often the typical technician is hands-on, you know, a learner. So we learn the most, not by, from what somebody tells us, but from what we actually see in the field what we experience and, you know, taking all those experiences and put them together. So I, I, I agree with you completely. Yeah, absolutely. Hey Don, uh, Ruben here. Um, I yeah. have a question on your demand cooling for scroll compressors. I was looking for uh-huh. one here not too long ago and I ran across a bullet that said that they were, um, obsolete and I believe they're replaced with the, uh, the discus, um, controller. Can you, can you kind of go over what we as technicians need to do to just uh, make that, you know, go with a newer um, DTC controller? Yeah, yeah. And, and 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 your question was what what how to how to how to approach the DTC controller. Um, I mean, what do we have to do to go from the uh, from the demand cooling for scroll to the the DTC yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah, you can. So you'll, it has to be a certain model, obviously. Um, the DT. Once you get the DTC set up, though, it is those DTC valves are replaceable. Uh, they come with like a you know like a a thermistor, if you will, that goes in the well of the top of the compressor, and uh, but they are replaceable and um, and have their own part number and what have you. But uh, uh, to go over from demand cooling. You you couldn't convert it over. Uh, you'd have to you'd have to switch over to the DTC. There's actually a there's a bulletin. I don't have it here in front of me, but there's an actually a bulletin that shows you the transfer of what you can 
what you can change over and what you can't. I don't, I don't honestly know those off the top of my head, but, uh, um, but the DTC is replaceable. And basically what it did was, is it, it just combined uh, all the different things that we used before the relays and, and uh, the, the, the solenoids and all the different things that basically just combined all of those things together and uh, as one is what it did when it changed. And that's been out for quite some time, actually. It's been, it seems like not that long ago, but it's been out for quite a few years now. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Probably not, but. Um, well, no, the reason I asked is because um, I actually didn't do the, I, I didn't replace the demand coding for scroll because um, when I actually went back, I figured out that I misdiagnosed it. <laughs> so, um, oh, okay. I, yeah, I didn't change it. But however, since I was, uh, I was looking at that and I found that out, I figured I'd ask you. Yeah, no. And the, and the latest one is the uh, ASTP. Um, and that is the, then that'll come with a decal on it. And that's, uh, that's got like a disc on it that will actually open up. It's a thermal disc. And it's like a TOD, a, a thermal operating disc, and it'll open up and actually relieve pressure if it gets so hot inside there. But it's based on the same thing, though. But we're, you know, I don't know how much you get into liquid injection and vapor injection, enhanced vapor injection, but that is really, really common now um, with very low temperatures, as you know, like minus 40 and some of the refrigerants that are out there. That's the whole purpose of it. I mean, I always tell everybody when they, they're new to injection of any sort, this is the first thing I get out of the way. I try to keep everything simple. When we're talking, what's the difference between liquid and vapor injection? First and foremost, liquid, the sole purpose for liquid injection is to cool the compressor. That's it. Okay, that's that's job one. That's what it does. Uh, that when you talk about vapor injection, enhanced vapor injection, it has two jobs. It's uh, cooling the compressor, and it also helps with the capacity of it. Uh, it sort of double dips, if you will, okay? There's a braised plate heat exchanger involved, and uh, it's a there's a there's a little bit more of a science to it, if you will. But it, it's 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 all the same concept, really. And when we say liquid injection, we're not really obviously putting liquid injection there. There's, as you know, there's there's a, a some type of metering device, whether that's a cap tube or or whatever it is, coming on. Uh, and and atomizing that, and if there is any droplets of refrigerant as it enters the compressor, the the heat of the compression flashes it off. So we call it liquid injection, but it's you know obviously we're not putting liquid in our vapor pump. Hey Don, with this uh, liquid injection, do y'all still use oil cooling, or have y'all gone away from that and just used uh, liquid injection? No, they they we do use oil cooling on certain uh, on certain AE apps on certain you know lower temperatures like below uh, when you're minus 35. Uh, there's an actual chart, an AE bulletin again that will tell you if you need an you know an upper fan and a, and a cooler oil cooler. Uh, but uh, it's 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 really really low temperature stuff. But yeah, we still do do it. But you're to answer your question, everything's going more into injection now. Um, it's just it's just a much cleaner setup, and uh, and and that goes that goes in hand again with the scrolls. We're talking about the scrolls taking over. That's part of that technology that they're they're adding to the scrolls that just make everything uh, just so much nicer. It's so much convenient. The technology is so much better. So, hey, Don Chad here. I had a question about uh, the 
discharge mufflers that you guys put on the semi-hermetics. Can you explain sort of why they're put on there? And then if they can be removed or they cannot be removed. Uh, on, on, on which one now? On uh, the what compressor? The semi-hermetics on the, on the discharge. So it'd be uh, between the discharge service valve and the, and the compressor itself. Yeah. So, well, you know, it's, it's really about the, mu- the, the muffle of sound there. Um, we don't encourage them to be removed. No. Um, I, I, I've never, I, I don't deep dive into those a lot, to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, it, the sole purpose, just like the scroll has, you know, we, there's, I don't know if you know this or not. It sounds like you tear a lot of compressors apart, but there's a muffler cap in the, in the scroll too. And, and it typically those, those items have two purposes, you know, uh, one is obviously sound. Uh, and for the example on the scroll, it separates the low pressure from the high pressure. So, uh, but on the semi-hermetics, I, you know, I, I'd be lying to you if I told you there was anything other than sound. Uh, we don't recommend anything coming off and not going back on, though, uh, that I can think of. If, if, it, if it came off, it, it needs to be replaced back on. Something else that I was curious about, curious about was, um, you know, everybody knows that the minimum compressor superheat needs to be or is recommended to be 20 degrees. Is there a max and is it different from uh, different pieces of equipment, whether it be cooler, freezer, or uh, air conditioner? So that's a great question. So when you're, so here's the deal. When we, so part of the staple of our class is, is discharge line temperature. That is key. And we, you know, backing up a little bit here, we say 20 degrees at superheat entering the compressor, but that's not a one size fits all. I mean, in, in some temperatures with like R22, that compressor would be smoking. So the, the how we teach the 20 degrees superheat is because we really don't dictate superheat or subcooling on anything because we, our comp- one compressor could be going out in six applications. So we leave that up to the, the, the equipment designer, the OEM. When we, when we do bring 20 degrees superheat in the way it's, the way it's taught and the way it's uh, the service uh, tech support guys tell them on the phone is, is if you have uncontrollable liquid flood back and you've tried everything, whether it's, you know, the line sets, you, you know, you've, you've made sure they were sized properly. You've added an accumulator. You made sure you were trapped properly. Then we'll, we'll request you, we'll suggest you to set the, the superheat going into the compressor at 20 degrees and we, we specify that to be in a high load conditions because a little known fact is we lose more compressors on low load conditions than we do high load conditions. So we're going to ask you to set that 20 degrees in high load conditions, the peak of the day. I know everybody in the store, all the, all the, uh, you know, all the coolers are being opened up, the place is packed. So because the theory behind that or the logic behind that is from the engineer standpoint is in that low load at night and it starts to cool off outside, you may only have six degrees, four degrees, two degrees superheat at the compressor, but you'll have something. So now on the discharge gas, that is the best indicator of what's going on inside the compressor. That is the one that we teach religiously to all our students. And 
We never really want that gas to, six inches outside the compressor on the discharge line to be high, higher than 225. I often try to tell them that 225 stay alive. And anybody that's ever been to my class will tell you that. They'll always say 225 stay alive. I remember you. But when you get up to 225, what happens there is over all the years of research, and, and I used to say all compressors, but I've backed off of that recently and because I'm only speaking for one compressor, that's Copeland compressors. But the fact is it's based on oil temperature. And what they found over the years, when, I mean, many, many years ago, the guys in the lab coats that are a lot smarter than I am is somewhere – in the hottest point of the compressor, any compressor, we lose somewhere between 50 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit temperature from the hottest point of the compressor to six inches down the discharge line. So if you do that, then the worst scenario is 75 degrees, and you add that to the 225, we come up with a number 300. At 300 degrees, anything above 300 degrees, the oil starts to move really fast on, 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 on compressors, like anything else. When you get to 320, it'll actually start to burn up, and at 350, it's breaking down, and you'll start to see carbon, okay? So it, the 225 is a warning sign. If you come out to a compressor and you see 235, 245, it doesn't mean anything's damaged as of yet, but you're outside the envelope. We need to start backing up, moving in. What's the, what's the superheat prior to going into that compressor? Is it high? And if it is, back up again you know what's the superheat coming out of the evaporator it may be right like i told someone not too long ago what if that line set was running through an unconditioned space something as simple as that and that insulation was ripped off of it you know hot hot goes to cold you know and so it, there's a lot of different things it is but the indicator for my money is the six inches outside on the discharge line now when you get up in the higher refrigeration scrolls and what have you, the refrigeration scrolls and the larger shells, we did away with those, the, the, some of the safety devices internally, and we put the task on the OEM to add a temperature probe or a sensor of some sort on the discharge, somewhere between five and seven inches out in that, in that sweet spot, that six inches mark. Now, that's going to go off around 270 or so or 260, and again, it depends on the application and what refrigerant. They vary somewhere there. What you'll find with every safety device in any Copeland scroll compressor is, to getting back to that 300 degrees, any device, no matter what it is inside internally in a scroll compressor or a uh, semi-hermetic compressor, it's not coincidental that all those devices go off somewhere around 270, 280, 290. They're always right under that 300 degrees inside internally in that compressor. That's the magical number you'd have to stay away from because you start to lose like on on your cylinders for for example at 300 degrees the thinnest film of oil is between that piston and that cylinder wall and that's going to be the first thing to go and once it starts to get 300 degrees in there you start to get hot in there that friction starts up and you start to see serious damage and depending on how long it goes uh, obviously you can start making some serious damage to that and having blow by and and bore that bore those or those uh, cylinder walls out and scar them. And it's, it's very common to do that. So, so would that kind of go back to the demand cooling um, modules that we were talking about before? Cause I, I know on some of the manuals, they I think they're cutting in at like two, six uh, or excuse me, two, 
I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it's quite a bit higher than 225. Um, so yeah, is that, that's basically, we're, we're, we're saying if our superheat or our return gas temperature is low enough to where we can maintain a 225 temperature on the discharge line, then great. Otherwise, we start creeping up. We're going to start injecting liquid into the compressor to bring that temperature back down. That's correct. Yeah. So like, you know, demand cooling temperature and the, and the internal head temperature, um, you're, you're going to see that rising through around 292, it's going to be on. Okay. And, 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 and uh, you're going to falling down to 282, it's going to be off. So it's always going to be somewhere right under that 300 degree mark. Okay. Uh, if it gets up to 310 degrees, the alarm contact energizes and Katie bar the door, that's it. So, uh, but you, it, I mean, it, again, I had to do a lot of reading when I first got there because you, you're not the typical contractor like myself and like yourselves. We're not out there tearing down compressors all the time and you, you, you don't know what you don't know, but I started seeing a pattern when I first got here three and a half years ago and every one of them, I don't care if they go off on, you know, temperature or, or if it's a thermal operating disc or if it's uh, by pressure, it's always right around that underneath that 300 degrees. It varies. Uh, some, of the, some of the TODs are 260, 270, 280, but it always hovers right underneath that 300 degrees. That's the magical number. So that 225 is a good number. The 225, six inches outside the discharge line, is something everybody should add to their tool belt and, add, and put it on their invoice. Just make it a habit of getting there. What's the discharge line? Because we a lot of times we don't have no way to get internally inside the compressor while it's running and see what's going on. We can't stick a temperature probe in there for the most part. So that 225 is a great indicator of what's going on in that compressor, if it's running hot or not. Now, that's good. that 225 number is good for all semi-hermetrics and about 96% of all scrolls. There are some exceptions to the scrolls that you can go a little higher, but they're going to be cut off again by that temperature probe that's been installed uh, from the OEM, from the factory, whoever designed the system. It's going to shut it down somewhere around, usually around 260. The difference is 225 will keep it running, will let you run, but the 260 somewhere around there, they're going to, you know, 240, 250, 260, it can vary. They're going to shut you down. They're just going to turn you completely off. So, but it's something really that every technician should be aware of. On the flip side of that, if you're if you are taking your discharge temperature, uh, a low discharge temperature could indicate that you have flooding back issues and other problems too. Is that correct? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So very one good point. One measurement yeah. could tell you if you have, uh, you know, high return gas temperatures or typical or potentially flood back to the compressor. As I saw uh, just this week, actually, on uh, social media, I think it was a Facebook post, but somebody had posted about a rack that was, you know, the end bells of the compressors were iced up. And I was surprised to see how many comments of people saying that 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 system was flooding back. There must be an evaporator that's frozen up or fans off or something going on. And in my mind, I mean, sure, maybe it was slightly under insulated, but you know, I was, when I was doing any kind of rack refrigeration on a low temp system, especially if I didn't see the end bells frosted up, I was concerned more than anything. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I just, the whole time you were telling that story, I was grinning because we've got a slide or two that actually show something, you know, like you said, all frosted up. Is that an indicator of liquid flood back and, you know, three quarters of the class or half the class? Yeah. 
you know, not necessarily. It just means we're 32 degrees or less, and and uh, oh by the way, there's humidity in the air, you know, and uh, yeah, it's not it's not a good indicator of it at all. And and, and in refrigeration, and as you know, at low temperature, that's pretty common, you know. So uh, I tell you, the best things that I I think are if you, if a person, if a per, first of all, I I love temperatures. I mean, temperature is king. Uh, pressures are all right, but temperatures will tell you everything. Uh, I don't, uh, it, you know, because, I mean, you can, you, if you get used to what you feel that you know what pressures are um, and you switch refrigerants, uh, that's not a good way to do it. If you know that a, a box walking in, a medium temperature box, is going to be, you know, 35 degrees, it may be different refrigerants and the pressures are going to be different, but you know what the temperature is supposed to be. So I, I like to do everything as much as I can with temperatures. With that said, if you were able to take your discharge temperature that we just talked about and made sure it was below 225, your incoming gas going into the compressor, 65 degrees, or you know, or check your superheat. And you know, if you want, if you if it looks good at 20 degrees, that's fine. But your 65 degrees gas coming back, and then if you know how to take the compression ratio of the compressor by just gauging up and literally, you know, turn, changing that over to absolute with atmospheric pressure. You can do about anything you want. You 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 can really almost you're internally can see that compressor. I can visualize it with just that little bit bit of information right there, and it doesn't take a whole bunch. What you were just hitting on was leads us uh, kind of into the Copeland mobile app and doing the performance diagnostics on the Copeland mobile app. I mean, you can put in your suction discharge. I think that one goes off of pressure, but you can put in your suction discharge pressure amp draw and you know, basically see if you're within the operating window of the compressor and if not, how far outside you are and if there is any critical issues that, you know, may be going on that you need to look into. So even if you don't yeah. know how to switch to absolute pressure and divide it and get your uh, compression ratio, you can plug it into the app and and get a, a pretty reasonable idea of what's going on. Oh, gosh. I I could talk for hours. I I. I jokingly say I drew the short straw when I came on board because I was even at fifty something years old. I was the I was the youngest guy, but um, I had a wealth of knowledge around me. But I bought this little device that I could plug into my iPhone or my iPad, and I would uh, I took our 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 slides from touching the slide, saying if you touch this button on Copa Mobile, you'll see this. Next slide, please. I plug and play, and I have the students follow along with me at the Copa Mobile. And one of two things happen: either they've never heard of our apps, which used to be real common three and a half years ago. More and more and more, more people are learning them, or they didn't know what they the power that they could do. Like they downloaded it and never revisited it, or you know they heard it was a good app and never. But some of the things you just mentioned are cutting edge. I mean, again, I'm biased, but our our Copa Mobile app is second to none. It has so much power to it. And you're right, and you can manipulate the numbers if it, you know, if it says this is what it should be, but, but oh, by the way, that's not what I have. So you can change the condensing numbers, you can change the, you know, the evaporator, you can, you know, you can see everything you want, the resistance, you can find out where to buy it, who has it in stock in real time, you can see who has it on the shelf. Uh, it's all pretty good stuff. I mean, mechanically, it's. I know I sound a little geeky, but uh, that's it. I, you know, if you, it. it, it you know, think about all the anxiety sometimes you get going out on a call when you first get in the field. I know I did driving out to a call on a Saturday, you know, when I was young and I was on call and we had all the, I won't name the stores, but we had all the convenience stores and there was probably about 44 of them. So if I left on a Saturday morning, 
you know, I may not come back that night, like on a 4th of July weekend or something. So half the battle was driving out there because the problem usually wasn't near as bad as you were thinking, what could it be? But uh, Copeland Mobile, man, I mean, I mean, it, it makes a, an average technician a, a super tech because it, it, it really, I enjoy showing it because it is a lifesaver to, to all the technicians out there. It really, really, I always tell everybody, why would we give a, an app for free? Why, why would we spend that much money on engineers to do software and, and put it out there? And all you have to do is download it and it's free. You just don't see many things like that. There's a lot of money that goes into that technology. Why would we do that? Is there a hidden agenda? And I always tell them, yes, there is. We're saving compressors. That's the hidden agenda. That's the payback. We're saving compressors. If you use it, you'll save compressors. Yeah, it's a it's a huge time saver too. In my mind, I used it before the performance aspect of it was on the app, but we I would use the app just to find replacement parts because typically I could pull up the compressor breakdown and find my part faster than I could if I called the parts house and gave them the part, you know, the compressor model number and had them find the part and then get there and realize they gave me the wrong part typically. So I could just look up my own part yeah. number, call them up, say, this is what I need. Do you have it or not? And most, you know, I got the comment a couple of times, like, how, do you, how did you even know, you know, what the part number was? And I was like, well, I just have this app right here that shows the whole break, breakdown of everything I need. So um, they were, it made their job easier, made my life easier. And, like I said, saved a lot of time. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. I'm glad you you I'm glad you brought it up. I appreciate you plugging it because it's not it's not uh, you know again. There's no hidden agenda there. It's really about helping people get better, and that's all we're we're, we're about. And uh, you know, so it's, I enjoy showing it because even to people my age, you know, that aren't really uh, tech friendly, if you will, I'll take the time at break time or whatever, get them off to the side and show them. And once I show them. It's like I always jokingly say, if I can do it, you can do it, you know, but it's, it's a real eye-opener. I mean, we, I teach a, a customized Huffman class twice a year. They come to Sydney, and, and just even those guys, you know, they love it, you know, and everywhere I go, I, I plug and play with that thing, and, and I'm doing it again Friday, actually, at that virtual class. I'm going to plug and actually show the whole class, you know, that, you know what, what's possible. I've done a lot of those uh, nationally on on webinars and stuff and it's a real eye-opener but uh it's amazing i i i ha i actually stop for five minutes at the beginning of any class and i have them download uh the copeland mobile the ae bulletins and the other one i like is hvac fault finder i don't know if you're familiar with it oh, yeah. but it's geared for it's, it's geared for the core sense but what's really nice about it is i point out to everybody I kind of save it for that last line, that last hook, if you will. And I'm not trying to sound like a used car salesman, but hey, what if you don't even have core sense on there? Well, just push no core sense, and it will even send, it'll start answering your questions for you. It'll literally take you to the problem and, and show you the checkered flag without core sense. And all you got to do is, I, like I say, just follow the bouncing ball. Answer yes or no. Is it doing this? Is it doing that? And it will it will help you. It will help you find the answer. So they're all there to help you get better, make you wiser, and uh, and make you more knowledgeable. There's a lot of power in those apps. Hey, Don, uh, speaking about compression ratio, I was uh, we were doing a startup on a couple of new uh, refrigeration condensing units with scroll compressors, and I was setting the low-pressure switches, and I noticed uh, they stated not to go lower than 17 PSI. Is that due to the floating seal inside the scroll compressor? 
It is. It's funny you bring that up because that is a that is something that we, as of last year, probably should have done it sooner. I don't know, but I'm uh, so my, our educational service is a very small department. Long story short, is we're actually tied into the application engineers. The application engineers is the group that actually not only answer the phones for tech support, but they also write those AE bulletins out. So it's, we're tied in with them every Monday morning. If I'm in town, I'm on a call with them first thing at eight o'clock in the morning. It's kind of a round table discussion like, Hey, what's going on? What's, what's doing good. What's not doing good. That kind of thing. So that was something the AE engineers asked us about a year, year and a half ago to talk more about so we slid some slides into our presentations about bringing those, you know, pulling down too low uh, on the compressors, uh, going in too low on the on the low pressure cutout, and it'll do a lot of damage to them. And uh, and the scroll really, uh, you know, it, it, you really can't pull a scroll down. I mean, it, it with a floating seal in it, it's just it's it's uh, it's almost impossible to do. It's not designed for that. But uh, but very good question. Kind of along those same lines too, but the on the recips, um, can you kind of go over uh, for technicians that are in the field that are coming across uh, reciprocating compressors still, uh, similar hermetics, either the uh, discus or the reed valve compressors, some of the troubleshooting steps that they can take to look for. You know, I think though the service manuals talk about pump down tests and if valves are holding or not holding, can you kind of walk through those steps for troubleshooting valves and, uh, and semi-hermetic recip compressors? Yeah, we're, we're, we're taught how to perform a pump down test, but really what does it really tell you in the field? I mean, only that the valves are not broken and are seen properly. And the scroll, as I said, you can pump, you can't pump down to a vacuum as it will, it's going to unload under the pressures and, and will equalize due to the high um, compression ratio. So the the best way to do it, if you're, let's start with the semi, do the semi-hermetic. So the best way to do it is, is, is to take a set of gauges and uh, you hook up one side of the, your gauges to the suction port and the other side to the little uh, fitting on the side of the crankcase you'll see there and it's a, usually about a half inch plug and you pull that out there and put in uh, 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 a fitting a brass fitting with like a half inch uh, uh, half inch uh, flared fitting and a half inch uh, male fitting to go in there and uh, you you'll what you'll say to determine if this is if the, you have blow by put the gauge on set on the compressor one on the grain case one on the suction line like I said start the compressor and start slowly uh, front seating that suction service valve. And each of those gauges should drop together. Now, if the crankcase has blow-by, the crankcase will stop dropping and the suction continues, you will have reached the point that the piston blow-by exceeds the ability of the vent valve that's inside that crankcase. So in other words, you hook up to the side of the crankcase, you hook up to the suction, turn the compressor on, slowly start to shift shut that uh, suction valve off very slowly and those gauges should go down pretty much simultaneously at the same time if you have blow by again it's ran hot um, a lot of times you'll see that on it's a real head scratcher if you have let's say a centronic or some kind of oil control on there and you get there and the oil's off it shut the compressor off but when you go to look in the eye the side glass 
the oils back in the sight glass. And what you and I, you know, what a lot of young technicians don't realize is, is that blow by on that cylinder wall pressurized that crankcase and caused that check valve that separates the motor and the crankcase to close, which is normally open. When that closes, because that pressure builds up, um, it's usually two pounds less on that crankcase side because it's vented. That's how it's designed. But when you have blow by, it'll shut, it'll start to pressurize. That equals the pressure in there, shuts the check valve, doesn't allow the oil to come down in. And then once it hits bottom, the protect, oil protection goes off. And by the time you get there, it's depressurized. The oil's back in the side glass. And you think something uh, must have been a lightning storm or you know, probably, you know, just something fluky happened or they lost power and you push it back on and, and, and go on down your way only to have it happen again. So you have to, that's a, that's a nice way on seminar metrics to check that out. And, uh, and I do that actually live in class for pretty much, you know, not all of our classes, but we, we do it on quite a few of them. Do you guys advocate for, um, using meggers on compressors, some hermetic compressors? or even scroll compressors, I guess, but are you, uh, is it typical for a technician to put a mega on a compressor to either condemn or, or pass it, I guess, so to speak? Yeah. Well, megas are, they're used, they're, they're best used for, um, one time, uh, used as a part of a regular maintenance program, if you will, just to monitor trends over several months. For example, you know, one might record a, a megohm value and compare it to a previous reading. Uh, if subsequent readings show a trend uh, of lower or lower values, then then you might have corrective action, such as a system cleanup. Um, I would refer you to see if I can find it. AE Bulletin AE twelve ninety four to your listeners out there. Um, we're not big fans of. The megohms for to make a final decision. We've seen them uh, misdiagnosed uh, lots of times. Um, uh, there are many factors that come into effect with megohm readings. Okay, they you know from in, including contaminated refrigerants, oil level, uh, current leakage through the electrical fusides or terminal plates. So before making a measurement, uh, all external wiring should be removed and all the electrical terminal bolts cleaned and torqued to specifications. Um, and again, if you go to the AE bulletins, you can just literally put the word torque in there uh, in the search bar and, and it'll pull up everything that we make with the torque values. But hopefully that answered your questions. We, it's not that we're anti mega meters. Um, we just don't feel that they're, they're, they're not good for making your final decision. If you don't have a track record with mega ohms, you can get false readings and it's a, it's another one of those statistics that come back to our factory. Um, you know, in, in our scroll compressors, you talked about all these compressors coming back that are that run. We test those compressors back, and in some models, like your um, your scroll compressors, because of the safety features that are in there, you know, um, open up on overheat or whatever inherent uh, protection inside there that either goes off on high heat or high amperage. You know, if you don't let that cool down, uh, a green technician will misdiagnose something and somebody else might come out later, like you talked about earlier, and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with it. Well, what they didn't know is that is that protection. But getting back to this, uh, the, you know, the megometers, uh, we get 30 percent 
uh, as high as 30% on some models of scrolls back that are identified as what we call NFS. And, and what that stands for is no failure found. We literally start them back up. And I'm not making that up. I mean, it, it happens quite often. If you're in a situation where you tore the compressor out and you turned it back in, and this is your second or third one or whatever, flags are going to go up. And if there's nothing wrong with that compressor, it's, you know, it can be a pretty, um, you know, it can be pretty alarming, you know, the cost of something like that. So you got to be aware, you know, do your due diligence to get that, get that um, diagnosis correctly. So uh, ohm meters, we like our, we like our, our, our ohm meter resistant testing uh, is the best way to do it. And uh, don't get me wrong, megameters have their place. Uh, but again, I refer to AE Bulletin 1294, and it'll go in great detail and tell us uh, the whys and why not. So we don't want a final decision made with just a megameter. So on those 30% of the no failure found compressors, do y'all just box them up and then send them back out to the supply houses? You know, that's a good, <laughs> like, they don't do that. Just sure. kidding. But, but, you know, I've never asked what actually does go to. I just, uh, I've just had the engineers come in front of me and they start them back up. And, but that's a good question. It'd be interesting to find out what does, does happen. They definitely don't go back. Out new boxes, <laughs> but uh, I'm sure it's, it's a, it's a, it's a long phone call. That's for sure. We'll we'll take any extras you'll have. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on, Don. Uh, can you, I know you, you've been doing some uh, short videos on Facebook. Do you want to plug that real quick? Yeah, you know, uh, I did something for someone someone else a, a week or so ago on his podcast, and he asked me the same thing. And I said, eh, not really. I said, you know, honestly, I just did it because I was getting bored and I wanted to put some stuff out there. You know, once once a teacher, always a teacher. But I uh, so I've been doing a little bit what I call Fun Fact Friday. It was never meant to go anywhere, to be honest with you. I did one video and I didn't have a place to put it um, because I've never been a, a YouTube guy, if you will. Um, so I went to a YouTube channel that I had for really personal use and, and, and as geeky as it sounds, what I would do is if I saw somebody in an airport that did kind gestures of, to people that out of no, for no reason, just did nice things, you know, whether it was a stewardess or whatever to a child, or I would film them. Well, long story short is I put it there to, to, and then to figure out what I was going to do with it. Well, I joined Facebook about a year ago. So, uh, and I've always been on LinkedIn, you know, far back as 15 years. So I, I put it out there on LinkedIn and I put it out there in several different groups on Facebook. And to my surprise, I got hammered and peppered with all these kudos and everything over a, a literally a two minute video. So I, uh, I decided I would do another one the following week. So, uh, so that's what you're referring to. It, it, I refer to it as fun fact Friday and I make a, try to make it, I, I said originally less than two minutes, but some of them turned out to be eight or 10 minutes and just over some things that you pro may know. And it's a wide range of things. I, I talk about, you know, anything from CO2 to complex things like that, to just, you know, what things that we just talked about, how to test a compressor to, to diagnose if it's uh, it's got proper resistance or if it's, it's dead or, or whatever. So um, it's been picking up a lot of speed and a lot of viewers are, are I see that they're, adding on all the time and uh so as long as it's helping people out you know that's the main objective if i can do i like passing knowledge on just like somebody gave me you know years ago so uh so yeah so it's out there if you want to look for it again on the facebook page it's called fun fact friday 
and uh, you're welcome to join. All we, we, we welcome everyone, and uh, it's got quite a few views. And I think you were telling me earlier when we were talking that you have also been uh, involved in RSES for quite a while and doing some webinars for them. If anybody is an RSES member, I don't, I don't think they're, yeah. I think they're only open to membership, right? I believe that is the case. I don't think I'm not, don't hold me to that for sure, but I do believe I've been down this road before that it's just for membership, but you can go to their website and see if there's, cause some of their stuff on their website is a larger fee if you're a non-member. So that might be the case with the webinar, but don't hold me that. I'm not sure exactly how that works as far as coming on live. Um, since you brought it up, I'm actually doing a, uh, I'm actually doing a webinar for them next week when I'm on the road in Pennsylvania in Harrisburg, that cost class, I'll be doing a webinar for them actually a week ago, week from today. It'll be Wednesday night. Um, at seven o'clock Eastern time, uh, for RSES. And I'm going to be doing, uh, causes and corrections of compressor failure. So similar to what we talked about, you know, the different topics of what we see most common of, of common failures of the compressor and, uh, how to correct them. So that should be fun. And, uh, and, uh, I've done a few of them for them and, uh, they're always a blast. I try to do as much as I can for them. One more thing uh, with the training. How can people find the Emer the Emerson or Copeland training that y'all are doing? Uh, are y'all doing it at the parts houses, or can they sign up for it? Where can they find that information? Yeah, yeah. So go to Emerson dot Education dot com, uh, or just put in Emerson Education HVAC Education, and you'll go to our website. And again, I can send you a link or attach a link. And uh, but if you go. To Go to that Emerson Education Emerson .education .com. You can go and see where we're teaching at next. You can you can take advantage of our our e learning uh, because of the COVID right now. We are offering a lot of our classes for free that normally had a small fee before. So you can check that out and you know work at your own pace. Anything from like a TXD you know class, thirty minute class to something more complex if you're into that and uh right now like i said a lot of those classes are free um you can like i said you can sign up for our instructor-led courses um the way the instructor-led courses are uh, uh since you ask we don't really have a schedule per se ourselves the way it works is we have an offering a book out there at education.emerson.com uh, you, we have a catalog of classes that we teach, like I said, anywhere from four hours to five days. A wholesaler calls our, our office and they say, hey, I want to hold this class. It has a set price and it's up to them to put, you know, two people from, you know, to 22 people in there. They fill the seats. In other words, we have a set flat price. So the reason I'm telling you all that is because what I learned right away is we get, you know, people come up at that first break and they say, hey, where are you guys going to be at next? And do you guys teach a supermarket class or do you do this? And I always tell them we're invited in. So if you have a class that you want to see, if you go to our website and say, man, that sounds like a good class, that three-day class or that two-day class or whatever, you need to get with your Copeland rep or your Copeland people in that area, whoever that wholesaler is. And go to them and say, hey, I'd like to have this class. And by the way, I've got three guys that want to come. And that starts the ball rolling. So we're we're kind of in a way, we're in, not kind of in a way, we're invited in. So I basically just kind of follow the bouncing ball from September until late May, basically, if you will. And then we have about two or three months of downtime. And then what I'll do is personally, as I go and visit local colleges and try to promote the tra trades 
uh, whenever I can. Or I teach other, uh, I train a lot of trainers for a lot of things in the summertime too, or we all do actually. So, um, but that's how you do it. Awesome. And if anybody has any questions, you can always uh, reach out to me at don.gillis at emerson.com. I'm, I'm more than willing to help somebody give them directions on how to get to our stuff. And, and again, if you go to those pages that we talked about, fun facts, I'm always posting easy access. And if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see a lot of good information. I'm always throwing everything out, out there I can, any free tips, anything we've got available that, that I think is worthy. My oldest son, my oldest son is 34 years old, and he's also a, a licensed journeyman. In fact, uh, about a month ago, he actually uh, stepped up another notch. He took his contractor's license. So it's in my family and generations. And uh, so I'm always trying to, I always picture him, and I'm trying to, you know, always try to help the next guy coming up the ladder to try to help them get better. So it's all about making everybody better. Well, you were helping out, helping us out tonight with our podcast, and we really appreciate that. Appreciate your time and uh, and making it on here and talking about Copeland, and uh, we just really appreciate it. No, my pleasure. I enjoyed. It. I appreciate you asking me, and uh, anytime I can help out, you you let me know, and uh, uh, I'll come back and we can talk about some other things. Thanks, Don. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Don. Thanks, Don. Hey, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Take care now. Welcome, Welcome to the HVACR Radio Podcast. Radio. <laughs>